In the United States, around 600,000 people are released from prison every single year. So these are people who, they did their time, they paid their sentence, and then they are released back into society. And you don't often think about this, right? At least I don't often think about released prisoners. So this seemed like a pretty large number to me. But what I found even more surprising was the number of prisoners that end up re-offending and getting arrested all over again for the same exact crime. Of those 600,000 who are released each year, 83% of them will be arrested again within nine years. And of those 83% who re-offend, 79% do so within the first six years. 68% do so within the first three years, and almost half, 47%, reoffend within one year of their release from prison. So these people, they are released, and when they get out, they have a choice. They could use their freedom to abide by the law, to do things better than they had done previously. They could make better choices, ensure that they continue enjoying this freedom that they have. But the vast majority choose to do the opposite. They abuse this freedom that they have. They use it to break the law, to do the very same things that landed them in prison in the first place. Now, this is a pretty shocking reality. One would like to believe that that the prison sentence would bring about a change in these people, that the offender would come out of prison with a renewed desire to, to... be a law-abiding citizen so they don't have to go back to imprisonment. But most of them don't do this. Most of them return to the very things that revoke their freedom in the first place. Our passage today is Galatians 5, 16 through 24. But before we dive into that text, I want to provide a little bit of context because we're kind of jumping into the very back end of the book of Galatians. The main point of Galatians is that we are saved only by our faith in Jesus, that we are not saved through our good works or anything like that. And throughout Galatians, Paul is arguing against these the the false teachings of a group of of Judaizers. Judaizers, they were people who were trying to persuade the Galatian Christians to become Jewish, to adopt the Old Testament law, and and was teaching that, that you had to keep and follow the Old Testament law in order to be saved. But because we could not keep the law perfectly, it it, it could not save us. And all it really did was kept us imprisoned under our sin. That's the language that Paul uses. But through his death and resurrection, Jesus has set us free. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law, set us free from imprisonment to our sin. Galatians chapter 5 talks in detail about this freedom that we have received and how We're supposed to use this freedom now that we have received it. In Galatians 5.13, this isn't a part of our passage today. It's just before it, but Paul warns the Galatian believers not to misuse their freedom. This is what he says there. He says, For we were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So in other words, don't use the freedom that you received in Christ to return to the sins that characterized you before you followed Christ. Use it instead to serve one another. 
So though we are not saved by works, Paul in Galatians 5 and then on in chapter 6 is showing us that good works are still very important. Now in our passage today, verses 16 through 24, Paul expands on what it looks like to misuse this freedom and what it looks like to properly use this freedom. This freedom that we have received means that we are no longer enslaved in our sin. We're no longer imprisoned under our sin. We have been set free so that we can live a life pleasing to God. But unfortunately, like a released prisoner who foolishly is rearrested, many of us often misuse our freedom. We don't use it to serve one another in love. We don't use it to please the Lord, to bear spiritual fruit. Instead, we use it to return to our former sins. So what Paul does in verses 16 through 24 is he challenges us to resist that desire, to return to our sinfulness, to our sinful flesh, to return to that prison cell of sin. And instead, to yield ourselves to the influence of the Holy Spirit so that we can bear spiritual fruit and please the Lord. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians 5, and we will read through our passage. We're going to read it in its entirety, verses 16 through 24, and then we will uh, break that down as we go. So starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You, you can't help but to notice here this contrast that Paul is making. So on one hand, you have the works and the desires of the flesh, and you can, you can put the law on that side as well. On the other hand, you have the spirit. And Paul's really laying into this contrast because he doesn't want us to miss the point. The flesh, our sinful flesh, and the Holy Spirit that lives within us, they are not compatible. You can submit to one, but you cannot submit to both. So Paul is expanding further on the point he made in verses 13 through 15. We read verse 13 already, but if we kept going there, we'd see that, that he says, if you do misuse your freedom for the flesh, you will, will bite and devour and consume one another. And this is intense language. This is the language of animals preying on one another, snapping at each other, trying to kill each other. And Paul says this is the outcome for a people of God where the works of the flesh are prevalent. So you have the flesh and you have the spirit. In our context, 
the, the flesh, or in this context rather, the, the flesh refers to our fallen sinful nature. Right? This is the natural inclination that, that all people have towards sin and wickedness. No one is inherently good. Right? And I know that our society loves to tell us that we're all deep down, everybody is good on the inside, and that's just not true. That is not what we see in Scripture. And if we're honest, that's not what we see in reality either. My daughter has reinforced this truth to me. Uh, she's an angel. She is a sweetheart. She's adorable. Uh, but she is old enough now to where she understands there's certain things she's not supposed to do. When we tell her no, Lauren and I did not teach her to throw temper tantrums. We did not teach her to get angry and to disobey. And now she does this thing where we tell her no and she gets mad and she's, she turns, crosses her arm and looks at us, kind of gives us a side eye. And she knows what she's doing. The other day, we got her a new sandbox. And we're trying to tell her, Maddie, keep the sand in the sandbox. Don't dump it on the grass. And so she slowly walks towards her sandbox, picks up the thing. She kind of looks. Grass. And I'm like, Maddie, don't do it. Just dumps it straight on the grass. <laughs> she is a sweetheart. But, but even young children, they, they are sinful in nature as well. They are rebellious. And that is the, the true of all of us. We are in our nature rebellious against God. That's why when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, you were all formerly children of wrath by nature. You were sinful by nature and therefore under the wrath of God. People are sinful. And even Christians, though we have been saved and forgiven, we are still affected by sin. We're still susceptible to temptation. And oftentimes, if we're being honest, those sinful temptations look attractive. They look appealing. But the difference then between Christians and non-Christians is that Christians are no longer enslaved or imprisoned under their flesh. Christians can resist their sinful flesh. They can be victorious over it. And that's what we're seeing in verse 16. Paul is giving us the solution. He says, yes, you're still susceptible to the flesh, but you can overcome the flesh. And the way you do that is through the Spirit. And the Spirit here is referring to the Holy Spirit that indwells all who come to Christ in faith. So Paul says that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the sinful desires of the flesh. In both the Old and New Testaments... The, the verb walk was used not just to describe the act of walking, but to describe a person's way of life, their behavior, everything that they do. And, and this is really, really common, especially in Paul's letters. He uses it this way almost every time. And we have similar phrases to this today. If you were coming to, to speak with me because you felt like your child was making poor decisions, uh, you might say they're, they're headed down a wrong path or they're walking in the wrong direction. Now, you don't literally mean that they are going in the wrong direction, or that they're literally on a path. We would know what you meant. You're talking about their behavior, the decisions they're making that characterize their life. So when Paul tells us to walk by the Spirit, he means that our behavior is to be guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit does not only help us to understand God's Word and how God has called us to live, but he also empowers us to resist the flesh and actually live a life that is pleasing to God. So if we yield to that, that direction, that guidance, that power of the Holy Spirit, then we will walk in obedience. We will be submissive to God and his word. 
The Spirit will never lead us into sin or to disobey God's Word. So we have a choice to make. We have two options, and these are mutually exclusive. We can walk by the Spirit and live a life pleasing to God, or we can gratify the desires of the flesh, walk according to the flesh. But we cannot do both. As Paul writes in verse 17, these two are against one another. There's this this fierce opposition against the flesh and the spirit. There's a battle going on within us. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you feel this tension regularly. Many of us do. But we have to make a decision. Will we yield to the influence of the flesh or to the influence of the spirit? And this is not a one-time decision. This is a, a continual choice that we have to make every day. Every time we're tempted with our, by our sinful flesh, we have to decide, no, I'm going to submit to the way of the Spirit instead. It, it may be difficult at times to resist the, the temptation of the flesh, but if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you always have the ability to overcome the flesh. You are never forced to sin. It is never overpowering you because the Spirit of God himself is indwelling you. He is living within you. And that's what it means to walk by the Spirit. It means we say no to those sinful desires because God has called us to something so much better. Walking by the Spirit is not some magical, mystical, mysterious thing that we've got to figure out and discern what it is. It's simple. It's the choice to say, I'm going to do this God's way. He has empowered me to do it God's way, and I'm going to be obedient to him now. The final clause in verse 17 gets a little bit tricky. It says, so that you cannot do what you want. Now, scholars debate Paul's specific intention here in this this short clause. Uh, And this is one of the most debated uh, sections in the book of Galatians. Now, some scholars say that Paul's point here is that the flesh works really hard to keep us from doing all of the good things we want to do that would honor God. Others would say that it is the spirit here who's preventing us from doing the sinful things that we want to do. I think there's a better option. See, the grammar that Paul is using here it's actually pretty ambiguous. It's not altogether clear, uh, just by grammar alone, what is doing the preventing and what is the nature of the works we're being prevented from. Are they good or are they bad? But I think that Paul's being intentional here by being ambiguous. I, I think there's truth to both sides. The focus in this passage is, is the opposition between the flesh and the spirit. Right? They, they don't mix. They are fighting against one another. It's this tension between the two. And so what Paul's doing here, he's showing us that we are never free from these influences. We will be influenced and driven by one or the other. It's the spirit or the flesh. You and I don't get to make choices independently from either the flesh or the spirit. One of these will always be in the driver's seat. One of these is always going to characterize our life and actions. So if we refuse to walk by the spirit then we will walk according to the flesh. That will be the driving force behind our actions. And if we yield to the Spirit instead, then he will be the driving force behind our actions, and we will not gratify the flesh. 
In verse 18, Paul comes back to the idea of the law, something he's hit on uh, extensively through the book of Galatians. And his goal here is to show that the law is no longer needed in the way that it once was. He reminds the Galatian Christians that, that if you are led by the Spirit, if the Spirit is indwelling you, the Old Testament law is no longer binding upon you. And he's inserting this verse here to show them that, that it's no longer binding precisely because of the presence of the Spirit. He is the one that guides your life and decisions. He is the one that empowers you to please God. So returning to the law, placing yourself under uh, subjection to the law, it, it would be just as foolish as a prisoner who reoffends and is thrown back in prison the next day. So what Paul wants us to see here in this, this first few verses that we've just been talking about is that we have a choice to make. We must choose between the spirit and the flesh. We must choose between the spirit and the flesh. There's no third option here. We don't get to be neutral in this battle between the flesh and the spirit. Our life will be guided by one or the other. So we can submit to the flesh, continue in rebellion, or we can submit to the spirit and find victory over the sin in our life and live a life that is pleasing to our Savior. So you and I, every single day, must wake up and decide that we're going to yield ourselves to the authority of the Spirit. Paul doesn't stop here, though. He continues to make his case for why we ought to reject the flesh and submit to the Spirit. And to do that, he's going to share what some of these works of the flesh actually look like and what it looks like to be led by the Spirit, on the other hand. The works of the flesh here, they're inherently sinful and destructive to us. But if you look closely as we read this, reread this, these next verses, you're going to see that a majority of these works of the flesh significantly affect the, the body of believers that the Christian is connected to. So turn back in your Bibles. I want to reread verses 19 through 23. <clears throat> Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. <clears throat> so we can separate these works of the flesh here into four different groups, right? And so we're going to approach this list handling one group at a time. So the first group contains three words that emphasize sexual sin. Sexual immorality, that is the, the, the catch-all word when it comes to sexual sin. Any kind of sexual activity outside the context of marriage falls here. The other two words are closely uh, related, but, but impurity refers more to the, uh, the defiling nature, the unclean nature of sexual sin, the unholiness of sexual sin. And then sensuality is probably referring to the lack of restraint we can show over our sexual desire. The next two words, idolatry and sorcery, relate to pagan religion and worship that was prevalent in that day. Idolatry is what you would expect, worshiping something that is not the Lord. 
But the, uh, the word for sorcery is a little bit different than what you might anticipate. The Greek word for sorcery is pronounced pharmakeia. Does that sound familiar to you guys? Anybody? I think I heard it. Yes, that's where we get our word pharmaceuticals. And this word has to do uh, with, with drug use. And it could be used in a more positive sense, like for medicinal purposes. It could be used for more nefarious purposes, like, like poisoning or trying to make somebody sick. But in this context, in the context of pagan worship, it was the, the blending of, of drug use with the search for spiritual power or spiritual help. So both of these ultimately come down to trusting in or depending on something other than God to be our true source of help and wisdom. Now, this third group, this contains over half of the words listed. And these eight words, uh, they emphasize works of the flesh that are destructive to Christian community. First, you have enmity, and enmity means hatred. And the word here is actually not singular, it's actually plural, so it's enmities. And probably a better way to translate this would be expressions of enmity, expressions of hatred. So Paul doesn't just have in mind the emotion of hatred or enmity. It's actually the actions toward others that flow out of that emotion. Strife is the, the selfish bickering that we engage in when we don't get our way. When our self-interests conflict with somebody else's self-interests. This is the fighting that arises when, when two people or groups insist on their own preference, when they decide that their desires and personal preferences take precedence over unity within the body of Christ. Jealousy is very straightforward. It can be a good kind of jealousy like God shows for his people. Uh, but in this context, it's, it's certainly referring to the sinful desires that, that we can have for something that does not belong to us. Fits of anger uh, that is, outbursts of rage, losses of self-control where you let your, your anger fly, particularly towards someone else. And I think this one, probably we hide it a little bit better. We, we can save face enough to not let these outbursts show in church on Sunday, but maybe when we get in the car or when we get home, that's when we let loose on that anger. Either way, it's still sinful and destructive. Rivalries refer to the selfish ambition that leaves us at odds with one another. This is competing with our fellow brothers and sisters. So maybe, maybe you don't get the, the credit you think you deserve, or somebody else gets more credit than they should deserve. And, and that sort of embitters you toward them, because you think they're getting something that you should be getting. And we start to see them not as a brother or sister that we're working alongside of, but somebody we're competing against, but it shouldn't be so because ultimately we are both working to make sure that God receives the glory and the credit. Dissensions is a general term referring to divisions often arising because of sin within the body, and then factions is probably a more specific form of that, but this is where, where groups actually start to form. So you have these divisions that start to manifest, and then people start taking sides, and it kind of turns into a, an us versus them kind of thing. And then envy is very similar to jealousy. Uh, but like with the first word, enmity, this again is written in the plural. So this is probably better understood as expressions of envy. So jealousy was probably speaking more to that, that emotion of jealousy, and this is speaking more towards actions that stem from them. Now, most of us 
have seen firsthand how these works of the flesh, like, like these eight that I just mentioned, how these can splinter and devastate a church. If you've been here longer than a year, you've seen that. If you've been with us for that time, you know that these types of things are, are devastating to a church. And the final group contains uh, two words, uh, drunkenness and orgies. And both of these have to do with a lack of restraint. Drunkenness is exactly what it sounds like, being given to alcohol, overindulging in that. And then in ancient Rome, in the ancient Roman Empire, the, these orgies were these giant parties where they would indulge in excessive feasting and, and oftentimes sexual promiscuity as well. Right? We could use these, this language to describe a partier in our context. And I want to speak to, to students for a moment. This is for everybody, but, but specifically to students because I think they also, they all, usually uh, people try to give them a free pass in this area. Many even Christians, and I went to a Christian college, so I know this firsthand. They view partying as just a part of the college experience, whether you're a Christian or not. Many Christians seem to think this is okay as long as you get your act together by the time you graduate college. That's your time to cut loose and to blow off some steam before you have to be a mature believer again. That could not be further from the truth. That mindset is wicked and sinful. It is of the flesh, not of the spirit. You can't party every weekend and then claim to be living a life that is pleasing to God. And again, I'm speaking to students, but this is true for all of us. Over, overindulgence, drunkenness, promiscuity, this kind of partying, things like that, these are willful acts of rebellion against God. Now, these aren't the only works of the flesh, certainly, but these are ones that were very prevalent in Roman society and in the, the city of Galatia. And so Paul's telling the Galatian churches, yes, I know, I know what the culture does, I know what everyone around you is doing, but it should not be so in the church. Don't return to your former works of the flesh. What society is doing, he said, you did that before you found Christ. And those who do these things, these works of the flesh, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul would say the same thing to us. You cannot practice these things and also walk by the Spirit. If you're emotionally or physically involved with someone that's not your spouse, or if you continuously indulge in your hidden pornography habit, you can't be walking by the Spirit. And those ones are more obvious. Nobody, I don't think anybody's going to disagree with me on those ones. Those are kind of the big ones. But I think where we get into trouble and what devastates churches so frequently are the more subtle works of the flesh in that third group. We tend to give a free pass to those ones. These aren't often seen as as, as as big of a deal. right? We indulge in them because we don't really believe they're as destructive as they truly are. But if you're harboring resentment toward your fellow church members or gossiping about them or competing with them because you don't like the way they do a certain ministry, you're not walking by the Spirit. You may not worship pagan idols and deities, but if you idolize your career or sports, you give greater devotion to those things than you do to the Lord, you're walking according to the flesh, not walking by the Spirit. No amount of these works are fitting in the life of a believer. They dishonor God, they hinder our fellowship with the Lord, and they are destructive to our fellowship, our fellowship as a body. 
Now, Paul's not calling for perfection here. He's not saying be sinless. He knows that we won't be. He was not sinless. But his point is that a Christian's life should be characterized not by the works of the flesh, but by walking by the Spirit in obedience to the Lord. Now, a Christian does not always do this, and that doesn't mean they're not a Christian. They do at times sin. They do at times walk according to the flesh. But this shouldn't be the defining characteristic for us. And when Christians use their freedom, when they misuse it for the flesh, they're essentially walking right back into a prison cell and closing the door behind them. They're returning to their former slavery. And those that consistently do this, who gratify the desires of the flesh, who make no effort to repent and change, well, what they're doing is demonstrating that they don't truly belong to the Lord. They belong to the flesh. They will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul says. But through Christ, God has provided a better way for us to live. We don't have to give in to the flesh. We don't have to give in to those sinful temptations and desires. Those things which wreak havoc on our souls and on our church communities. We can walk by the Spirit and bear spiritual fruit. And that's what the, list, the second list that Paul shared with us is. And these, this list here can't be broken down into groups like, like the other ones. So we're going to just run through these. But each one of these, again, affects us as individuals, but also the larger whole that we are connected to. The first one we see is love. And I do think that Paul places this first to emphasize its importance. I think all of these other ones are done in love. That's what Paul said in verse 13. Walk by the Spirit so you can serve one another in love. All of these other things must be done in love. And this is love in its simplest form. Love for God, love for our neighbor, love for one another. We imitate the love that God has shown us as we interact with others. Joy, then, is, is the happiness or the satisfaction that we find in the Lord. This is not rooted in our circumstances and how our life is going, but it's rooted in who God is and what he has promised. Peace refers to the harmony in relationships, uh, either uh, in, in the relationship we experience with God or with others. I think probably the latter is in focus here because of Paul's community focus here. Uh, Paul has in mind here that, that when we walk by the Spirit, there will be peace in our relationships among fellow believers. Patience is to be long-suffering. Patience endures even if we don't like the situation, even if somebody in the church is frustrating toward us, or frustrating us, rather. And Paul here is thinking of the patience that we show that person, the frustrating person, the frustrating situations. Kindness usually is associated with God's kindness to us in salvation. And so I think the point is that just as God was benevolent in showing us kindness and saving us, we should show that same kind of kindness towards others. Goodness is very similar to kindness, but this is more emphasizing the moral rightness being worked out towards our fellow brothers and sisters. Faithfulness is dependability. It's, it's a loyalty. Faithful people are honest. They keep their word. When they make a promise, they keep it. They show up. They're involved in the life of the church. And when they can't be there, they try to find somebody to fill in so they're not a hindrance to the ministry. Now the next one, I think, is probably the most overlooked fruit of the Spirit 
on this entire list. Uh, that is gentleness. And I think that this is one of the most important fruits of the Spirit that, that anybody can share, but especially church leaders. Gentleness is a mixture of, of meekness and, and humility. The, the gentle person doesn't seek to cut others down when correction is needed. When, when they have to respond to a given situation, their response is measured and appropriate. They don't uh, try to elevate themselves above other people. Gentleness is so important in our relationships with one another. And then the final one, self-control, is not only control over your actions, but your thoughts and desires as well. So you must master your thoughts and actions and desires, not the other way around. And then Paul says, against these things, these fruits of the Spirit, there is no law. There's no law that condemns such behaviors. Paul was accused of saying, works don't matter. You're leading people into sin by abandoning the law. And Paul's saying, what are we leading them into? This is what the Spirit leads them to. There is nothing sinful here. The Spirit only leads people to love and please the Lord. And so when you and I, when we yield to the Spirit, this is what our lives should look like. Right? Which person would you rather be friends with? The person characterized by the first list or the second, the one who is given to fits of rage and is always causing strife and competing with his fellow church members, or the one who is gentle, who is patient, who seeks to be a peacemaker, who seeks to show kindness and love towards his friends. What non-Christian would want to follow Jesus if his people and his church are characterized by that first list? Nobody. Walking by the Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit. And this pleases God. It benefits one another. But it also strengthens our witness to the world. So the first thing we saw was that Paul is telling us we must choose between the flesh and the Spirit. And now Paul is showing us that our choice is revealed by the way we walk. Our choice is revealed by the way that we walk. So we have those two choices, spirit or flesh. You cannot claim to walk by the spirit, but also embrace the works of the flesh. This choice is more than just a mental assent or acknowledgement. It will show in the way that you live. The one you're submitting to will characterize your life and actions. Paul wrote in verse 21 that those who do the works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words... They are not counted among God's people. They do not belong to Christ. And there's a reason Paul speaks with such certainty on this matter, and he gave us that reason in verse 24. So let's revisit that one more time. We're going to read the final verse here, verse 24. <clears throat> and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Short and sweet. <clears throat> when I played soccer in college, there were certain expectations placed on every single member of the team. Everybody that was on the team, there were certain standards, uh, fitness standards, that you had to meet. We had several workouts every week outside of practice, and you had to complete those, or you wouldn't play. And the ones who were actually a part of the team completed the workouts. Every summer, they returned, and they were fit. They could pass the fitness test. They were ready to go because they cared about the team. They were good 
teammates. But every year, there was new guys that would come in, and they thought that they could just kind of show up and walk in and do whatever they want, and they wouldn't do the workouts through the year, or they'd show up from summer, and they were not in shape. They couldn't pass the fitness tests. It didn't take very long before they were sent down to JV or kicked out of the program entirely. If you wanted to be a part of the team, you had to act like it. And I think this is similar to what Paul's saying in verse 24. If you truly belonged to our team, you would act as a teammate should. In the same way, if you belong to Christ, you will walk by the Spirit because that's what Christians do. And that's Paul's third point. Those who belong to Christ will walk by the Spirit. Those who belong to Christ will walk by the Spirit. Again, Christians are not going to be perfect. They're not going to perfectly walk by the Spirit. We're not going to be sinless, and Paul's not anticipating this. But a genuine believer, a genuine Christian, will look a lot more like the list of the fruit of the Spirit than the list of the works of the flesh. <clears throat> I want to be clear again, the fruit of the Spirit, they do not save us but they are a necessary result of our salvation. Those who come to Jesus are so transformed that they could not possibly be controlled by their sinful flesh any longer. Because Paul says that those who belong to Jesus, they crucified the flesh. They crucified its passions and desires. So those former desires that still do plague us often, they don't hold the power over you that they once did. And Christ has sent his spirit into you so that you can, can embark on a new way of living, that you can resist that flesh. And in this new way of living, it is freedom, freedom from the imprisonment of our sin. And that freedom enables us to live a life pleasing to God. I understand that people mature at different rates. Nobody's going to perfectly embody all of the fruit of the Spirit all of the time. It takes time to grow in our faith, to develop the fruit of the Spirit. But brother or sister, if the works of the flesh are, are a better depiction of your life than the fruit of the Spirit, that's a serious, serious problem. And if that's you, then I urge you to consider Paul's words in verse 21 very, very carefully. Those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who belong to Christ will walk by the Spirit and bear spiritual fruit. So each of us must choose between the Spirit and between the flesh. And we will demonstrate that choice in the way that we live. And ultimately, those who belong to Christ will choose to walk by the Spirit. So in this passage, Christians, the Christians of Galatia and Christians today, are called to walk by the Spirit and bear spiritual fruit. That's the big idea, the main point that Paul is getting at. This is how Paul wants us to use the freedom we have received in Christ. Walk by the Spirit and bear spiritual fruit. The church also demonstrates their belonging to Christ by bearing spiritual fruit, by walking in the Spirit. And church, I want to say this again. The works of the flesh should have no place in our midst. If we allow envy, rivalry, dissension, strife, division, sexual immorality, idolatry, or any of these other works of the flesh to take root here, it will devastate this body. And it only takes one or two for these works to spread. It, it, is, a, it is a plague. It is contagious. So each of us need to search our own hearts. What is being produced in your life? Is it the works of the flesh? 
Or is it the fruit of the Spirit? What is driving you in your life? Is it the selfish desires and passions of your flesh? Or is it the presence of the Spirit within you? Walk by the Spirit, church. And when the Spirit convicts you of sin, don't just shove it aside and ignore it and continue in your sin. Respond to the Spirit's work with humility and obedience. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you are enslaved and imprisoned by your sin. That is the reality. But Jesus offers you forgiveness of sins and freedom Freedom to know God and to live a life that is pleasing to him. Turn to Jesus and embrace the freedom that he offers. And those who would call themselves Christians, I tell you again, don't be driven by the flesh. Fight against those sinful desires. The more that you feed those desires, the stronger they will grow. You need to starve the flesh. And this is a decision we have to make every single day. Every time we face temptation, we must choose to submit to the Spirit instead of the flesh. Our sinful desires, they are attractive in the moment. But when you embrace those, all you're doing is returning to your prison cell. It's foolishness. Don't return to that which Christ died to set you free from. How much more effective would we be as a church How much more effective would our witness be if all of us consistently were walking by the Spirit, consistently demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit? When a brother or sister frustrates you, don't allow that to fester in your heart to create strife between the two of you. Respond with patience and love. When the church does something that that is different than what you would prefer, right? Like they choose a different color ceiling or a different kind of carpet than you'd want. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. Don't insist on your own way. Don't try to rally support around to get your way through. Let unity take precedence over your preference. If you feel that your contribution has been overlooked, and it might have been, if it has, don't let that breed enmity between you and your brothers and sisters who maybe weren't overlooked. Because ultimately, you're not the main, the main thing. God is. We want him to get the glory and the credit. Instead of being angry with the people who are getting the credit, rejoice for the way that God is using them, the way that he has gifted them, and the way that God is glorifying himself in them and in the rest of the body. We have to look different than the world around us. If we're serious about reaching our community like we keep saying we are, then when non-Christians see us, whether as individuals or as the larger body of Redemption Bible Church, they must see the fruit of the Spirit on display. Because that will show them that the Spirit of God truly is in our midst. But if they see a body riddled with immorality, and strife, and division, and dissension, why on earth would they be interested in listening to what we have to say about God? Do not use your freedom as an opportunity to sin, but instead serve one another in love. Walk obediently before the Lord. Our sinful flesh was crucified with Christ, put to death with Christ. It no longer has a hold on us. We have freedom from it. God has given us his very spirit so that we can have victory over the flesh. We are an entirely new creation, And because that is true, 
We must resist the works of the flesh and bear spiritual fruit instead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I think too often we, we don't even recognize the, the magnitude of this gift and what it means for us. Lord, we praise you for the death and resurrection of Jesus and for the freedom that he purchased for us with his own life. Lord, help us not to return to the very things that we were imprisoned under. Help us to use our freedom rightly, not for sinful indulgence, but to bear spiritual fruit and to glorify your name. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.